Frontier. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. For your continued support. And keeping this radio station powered by the people. Thank you for letting me KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. White woman whose lies got 14-year-old Emmett Till kidnapped, lynched, and killed dies today. She was 88 years old. Here are today's headlines. Chicago transit workers under attack. International news from outside the NATO-controlled media sphere. Commentary on Tucker Carlson's departure and the mainstream media reliance on corporate and government interests. U.S. congressional resolutions passed Tuesday against Russia and the community calendar. All this and more coming up. Dan Nauman reports, where is the U.S. heading? Is America heading to its demise? Author, journalist, and geopolitical analyst Caleb Maupin discussed this and much more with Kim Iverson. We're seeing skyrocketing inflation. The crime rate is way up. We're seemingly marching ourselves into world war with several nations around the globe. What is going to happen to us? With us now is Caleb Maupin. He recently wrote the book, Where is America Going? Marxism, MAGA, and the Coming Revolution. Are you saying that are, is one against the other? Are they the same? What is your position on that? Well, essentially, I'm using Marxist analysis to explain where the United States is going and why we are facing a crisis. And I argue it's rooted in a long-term economic fallout, uh, and then that gives rise to divisions among our ruling class. But part of the reason I gave it that provocative title is because when I was a college student, I remember I had a, uh, a professor, an older man who'd lived in both Vietnam and China, spoke both languages fluently. And I remember he one time took me aside and he said to me, Caleb, American communists have no idea what they're talking about, right? And he told me very provocatively, he said, if Mao were alive and living in the United States, he would go to the poorest corner of Appalachia and start some kind of uh, George Washington Bible gun club. And I heard that and I was like, what is he talking about? What in the world is he getting at? And it took me years. I was part of Occupy Wall Street, uh, and then I started traveling internationally. I visited Venezuela a number of times. I've been to the Islamic Republic of Iran. I've been to global communist gatherings in, in you know, Sochi, Russia, and in Ecuador, the World Festival of Youth and Students. And I've realized that what we consider to be leftism in the United States of America has nothing to do with what Marxism is around the world. And that what's happening right now with Donald Trump, with the events of January 6th, is the beginning of a process when you enter a long-term economic and political crisis as a society, when the elites start fighting against each other, they start bringing people into politics to kind of battle each other on their behalf. And it's that kind of process that gives birth to the kind of events that we've seen in the 20th century with socialist revolutions. And that many leftists in the United States, when it really gets down to it, are just kind of defenders of the status quo at this point. They're defending the FBI, they're defending the wars, etc. However, there are a layer of Americans uh, who are struggling economically, who want the country to have an economic reboot. And uh, many of them are supporters of Donald Trump. There's a, a meme on the internet, uh, they talk about MAGA communism. And now I don't fully embrace that brand. That's not my brand exactly. But I would say this book is the closest thing that has yet been published to a MAGA communist manifesto. Because I argue that the tendencies and the trends in US society that gave birth to Donald Trump and MAGA are the tendencies that could potentially give birth to a real genuine socialist movement in America. And that the left or the so-called left is not putting its energy and paying attention and focus in the right way. 
I think it's going to be a hard sell, I would think, for for MAGA people to embrace Marxism. Is that what you're is that what you're getting at? Not at all. What I'm saying is that America, the United States, is facing a long-term society-wide crisis. And this kind of crisis is rooted in the economic foundations of society. And it is leading us to political turmoil that could potentially give birth to a genuine socialist movement. And what we call the left in the United States is not that. Uh, in the book, I talk about Zbigniew Brzezinski and how he wrote a very important book uh, during the 1970s, uh, the technotronic era he started referring to. And basically he argued that the 1960s new left uh, was not a danger of communist revolution or anything like that. Rather, it was a cultural reaction to the changes in, in society that were happening as a result of the information revolution. And he argued that rather than fight against the new left, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War protest movement, the counterculture, rather the energy there could be hijacked and utilized against the communist bloc, right? And we saw that with the color revolutions. And he argued that with the information revolution and putting the United States at the center of the computer revolution, uh, what could happen was the world could be, quote unquote, Americanized. And the ideology of liberalism, not liberal as in left or versus right, but rather liberal as in individualism above all else, rejecting any collective identity. The American notion of individualism could be universalized throughout the world. And that is what we have really seen. The world has been Americanized. And the USA was victorious in the Cold War. The communist bloc was largely brought down. And we've seen the Americanization of the world and we've seen the computer revolution. But it has only amplified deep problems in our economic and political system uh, to the point that we are seeing the breakdown of society. And I compare it to the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, and ultimately, you know, there is going to be some kind of reckoning. The United States is going to have to move to some form of illiberalism in order to survive. But what kind of illiberalism will that be? That's what I get into in the text. Yeah, that's interesting. So. Um, I guess I should ask you first, what is leftism then? If the, what is the, the U.S.'s version of leftism versus what you would consider to be leftism? Well, the terms left and right, historically, it comes out of the French Revolution. In the French Revolution, the king was, was brought down, and they formed a national assembly. And the people in the National Assembly were more sympathetic to the king, sat on the right, and the more radical forces that wanted to march into the future and be modern, they sat on the left. And that's where the connotation came from. So what does leftism really mean? It kind of just means historical progress, the desire to advance, whatever that means. Now, what's interesting, though, is we saw in the United States, there was, you know, you had the Communist Party during the 1930s that were big supporters of Roosevelt that mobilized against fascism, built the labor movement, were key in bringing up the issue of civil rights. But after, after the, Cold, uh, the Second World War, you saw McCarthyism and the breakup of the Communist Party. The Communist Party was significantly weakened. Um, but you also saw the CIA the American Central Intelligence Agency launched a program called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, where they started subsidizing socialist and left-wing publications to push forward a message that was against the Soviet Union that would be useful to American intelligence. And many of the big left-wing names uh, of that period, Susan Sontag, Mary McCarthy, Hannah Arendt and others came out of the CIA covertly propping them up. Magazines like Partisan Review, Encounter, Der Monat, and they talk about the Frankfurt School, Theodore Adorno. These individuals were being promoted, and this is fact. I mean, this is documented. I mean, this is factually acknowledged by the CIA itself. They began promoting certain leftist personalities. But those leftist personalities they were promoting, not only were they against the Soviet Union and against China, they framed leftism in the term in the terms of radical individualism. It was about the intellectuals versus the mob. And it was really an extension of what began with Friedrich Nietzsche, what was continued with Ayn Rand and others, uh, the teachings of Leo Strauss, what can be called philosophical irrationalism, which is the belief that there is no real truth, uh, that when it really gets down to it, it's just kind of a uh, law of the jungle uh, scenario out there and the people the broad masses of people, the working class, are very dangerous because if they get together, if they get together, they'll threaten the great intellectuals and their freedom. And that kind of thinking, 
philosophical irrationalism, anti-populism, that became synonymous with leftism. And, it, and in the United States, that's really what leftism has become. That kind of desire to tear things down, that libidinal release that seems to be behind a lot of leftist politics is something that is very much hijacked by the tech monopolies and other forces to push their agenda around the world and target governments they don't like. So the political compass has really been broken. We don't really know what's left and right. But what we do know is the Western countries are in a big crisis right now. Meanwhile, Russia and China are rising, Iran is rising, the Bolivarian countries of Latin America are rising, and there is an alternative economy that is emerging uh, in which they have a different perspective. This is Dan Nauman, Rebel Alliance News on KPFK. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Chicago transit workers face horrendous conditions on the job, including physical assaults on the job and the lack of even toilets. They are also fighting for union democracy. An ATU-241 executive board member, Eric Slater, was arrested by the Chicago Transit Authority while he was campaigning, and the top of union officials refused to defend his worker and democratic rights to campaign in the election. Pacifica's Steve Zeltzer reports. Uh, My name is Robert Thomas. I'm a bus operator at CTA. The work that we do is very important in Chicago. We move the whole city. You know, we get called city workers by family and friends, but we really don't enjoy any of the benefits that the city workers enjoy. In regards to wages, a lot of our wages, we don't get to see a lot of our wages. Actually, we only get to see about 50% of our wages. And the company and the union have seemed to come up with a deal that sees all uh, that has all these deductions taken out, healthcare, trust, pension, the list goes on. I'm a part of the Chicago Transit Justice Coalition, which is a volunteer group of co-workers within ATU Local 241 and 308 that empower the workers to fight back, learn their constitution, learn their rights. And uh, we hold protests, legal protests, off the clock, uh, because we believe that uh, workers should stand up and fight back. And our greedy employer, you know, we ask for simple things such as bathrooms, which we still don't have 75 years later. It's uh, pretty sad that we still have to fight for bathrooms, brick and mortar bathrooms. They have set up porta potties for us, which is horrible for female and anybody, frankly, to use in the winter, in the cold months, no lighting, no heat, no security, you know, it's just bad all around. So uh, the Justice Coalition is uh, advocating for brick and mortar bathrooms and full-time jobs for all. We work for a company that's a billionaire. It's got billions since COVID started, and they should be able to provide full-time jobs for all. But it's, you know, this grip that they got on uh, part-time workers, it's, it's, it's almost a thousand part-time workers in the customer assistant role at the boot, at the train booths alone. So uh, we need to fight for full-time jobs for all so we can get our workers out of poverty. Thank you, uh, Robert. And uh, Eric, you also have been taking up issues of uh, health and safety workers' uh, conditions for CTA drivers, and you uh, got pushback from management. Yeah, I've been uh, a bus operator um, for the Chicago Transit Authority for 17 years now. I've been uh, fired twice. I was part of uh, organizing efforts for many organizations um, like um, the Chicago Transit Workers. We had a council we put together. Uh, We did a rider-driver alliance. Um, and we've definitely had many rank and file worker groups uh, that have been trying to reform our union and fight for working conditions um, against our employer in the city. Uh, so it's been a long fight. I've been fired twice after I was elected to, by my coworkers to be a shop steward or executive board member. I was uh, fired twice. We're currently fighting 
the second termination, uh, again, uh, fighting for the rights for workers to do, be able to speak to each other at the workplace. Uh, the last termination happened when I was simply reading the position of our international president uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd being murdered and our rights to work in safe working conditions and not have to uh, be forced into working in unsafe conditions. We're really facing that right now with the violence uh, against us, especially the frontline workers. Our union, uh, the as Robert was talking about, we have two amalgamated transit unions. There's many other craft unions that represent workers at the Chicago Transit Authority and other unions in PACE, but we're like the big um, the big union, 241, we have about 10,000 families, if you include our retirees. And we have all kinds of different job classifications, as Robert was talking about, uh, on the rail side, the customer assistance. Uh, and I absolutely support this, this uh, slogan for uh, full-time jobs for all, equal work for equal pay. Uh, just a few days ago, uh, there was uh, one of our buses was riddled with bullet holes uh, in, the, in the driver's area. It looked like uh, the driver may have been targeted. Uh, fortunately, they they look like they haven't been major major damage. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a bus operator who was taken off the bus and beaten up. Uh, and this is this is just the stuff that makes the news. Uh, and this is just an, a daily thing that that affects us. We're not backed up by our employer. When when something happens, and many things happen on our buses because of the social crisis in society. Uh, the closing down of many of the necessary social services we need, the um, the lack of of good union scale jobs for us and, and working people. That those problems come on our bus, and we're just trying to drive down the street, and they come they come after us to a bit. Uh, and then when something happens, our employer doesn't back us up, and they see us as a as an opponent. Just today, I was verbally assaulted by a man that I picked up on the bus and uh you know I let him ride free he didn't pay and then when he got off he looked at me he said you got a problem and I said what you talking about man he said you want to get shot I said no I don't want to get shot do you want to go to jail I just got out that's what he told me and uh you know we got a lot of people in this city that are mentally unstable and unfortunately uh the mental health clinics were closed under the Rahm, uh, Rahm Emanuel administration. But I'm with Mayor John, uh, Brandon Johnson, I hope that we can get some of these uh, mental health clinics open because we really surely need it in the transit world. Well, this issue of part-time work, uh, these are public jobs. What does it mean to be a part-time worker, uh, Robert, in the Chicago Transit Authority? And how can they survive as a part-time worker? Well, it's hard to survive as a part-time worker because they got the Second Chance Program, which is a program that the CTA created along with the union to give, and I believe in this wholeheartedly, I think people who have went to jail do deserve a second chance at employment, and a lot of employers won't hire them. So CTA came up with this program there to employ people who have uh, went to jail for whatever reason. But the issue is the pay. They start at $15.40 an hour. It's horrible. They're working with chemicals all night long, and they work overnight shift. There's no day shift for these workers. They get no health benefits. They get no dental. They get no vision. And they have to pay $75 a month in union dues. So, you know, we have hundreds of these workers in the Second Chance Program. Same thing with the customer, assistant, uh, cu customer service assistance at the train booths at, all across the system in the city. You know, you got, we have uh, members in our justice coalition who have been part-time for nine years. No benefits, no benefits, $19 an hour. That's what they're making. And it's just, uh, it's horrible that the employer can keep somebody part-time for nine years when clearly the money is there to turn them over full-time. The issue is not the pay. Well, the issue might be the pay because we only get to see 50% of our income in our, in our bank accounts every two weeks. But the issue is that the CTA has a toxic work, uh, a toxic work culture and they need to treat the workers right that they do have. They're gonna get the 600 missing operators that they need, but they won't get it because Word around town 
if CTA is not treating their workers right and they're putting their workers through unsafe working conditions, such as these three-minute layovers, such as these no no brick and mortar bathrooms, porta potty bathrooms. Who wants to use a porta potty bathroom and when the weather is zero degrees outside and everything's a block of ice? No heat, no security, broken locks, uh, no running water, no hot running water. Come on now, we're in 2023 and they can't figure out after 75 years of existence, they can't figure out how to build a brick and mortar bathroom at every bus turnaround, at every uh, at every end of the line. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Hi there to all of the KPFK listeners. This is Ari Gold. I'm a filmmaker and I wanted to invite everyone to come out this Saturday to co-create with my team the inaugural issue of Fogtown, which is an eco-punk action zine. Uh, We're having a pizza party. We're inviting activists and storytellers and poets and doodlers to come contribute their art. Um, So come down to fogtown.com where the info is there and we would love to have you. And if you can't make it in person, feel free to send us a doodle by clicking on the submissions form at fogtown.com and we'd love to get it in print. We're going to be launching this zine at the Cannes Film Festival where we are looking to bring together activists and storytellers to change the world. We have interviews with Stephen Donziger, with actors like Robert Sheehan from Umbrella Academy and many, many more. So please come on down to fogtown.com and thank you so much, KPFK. $10 might seem like a small amount, but when you sign up as a KPFK Sustainer Circle member, that $10 helps pay for daily broadcast of Democracy Now!, the Tom Hartman Program, and all of the news and information you hear on KPFK. You get a lot for your monthly contribution, and we need that gift right now to keep bringing you all of the programs you count on. $10 makes a big impact. We combine it with contributions from your fellow listeners who rely on KPFK as much as you do. Public radio only works with you. This is Kathy Diaz, the Monday host of The Global Village, encouraging you to contribute now. Go to kpfk.org, then click Sustainer Circle. Whatever you can do, please do. Thank you. Yes, become a sustainer. Go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online or call 818-985-5735 and follow the prompts. We are getting towards the end of our spring fun drive and spring is in the air. So let's bring in those donations and keep community radio going. A pair of congressional resolutions passed Tuesday look dangerously close to an outright declaration of war on Russia. The resolutions state that U.S. policy is now to see that Ukraine is victorious in the war with Russia and that all of the territories Russia now occupies, including Crimea, the home of Russia's largest naval base, be returned. Don DeBar has more. Uh, I've been to Ukraine three times over roughly the last year visiting Kiev and President Zelensky, and I want to thank you and the President for committing to do whatever it takes. I think I'm almost quoting exactly. That was U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat from Connecticut, at a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing in late March. And in my view, whatever it takes includes airplanes, aircraft. Uh, Would you agree that as a strictly military matter, and you know a lot more about this than most of us at this side of the table, that that kind of air support from the United States is going to be necessary, and the sooner the better. Blumenthal was asking the question of U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. This was his reply. What they need right now, more than anything else, is air defense. Uh, and and that is the critical need on the battlefield. And and they also need long-range fires and, and uh, armored capability. 
And we are providing them a real substantial package of capability in terms of platforms, but not just that, we're also providing training uh, and we're providing sustainment. And sir, you witnessed some of that coming together when you were in Grafenvir, and I really appreciate you going out there and, and visiting our troops. Uh, but, uh, but I think those capabilities will make the biggest difference uh, in, in the near term. And they must be successful, uh, you know, going forward. We know the spring, uh, spring fighting season's uh, in front of us here, and, and we want to make sure that they have what they need to be successful. What is the intent of the escalation to an air war with Russia? Blumenthal himself answered that question. He introduced a resolution in the Senate Tuesday, which calls on the U.S. to support an outright victory over Russia. A similar resolution was introduced in the House of Representatives with 18 co-sponsors, including members of both parties. Although the sense of the Senate resolution is not technically a declaration of war on Russia, Moscow may not quite appreciate the subtleties of the legalism involved, given that this resolution is more than the Congress had issued before Washington conducted, for example, its seven-month bombing campaign over Libya, or its 12-year war and occupation in Syria. Maria Zakharova is the spokesperson for Russia's foreign ministry. She spoke about this through a translator at her weekly press conference Thursday. Recently, the head of the Ukrainian foreign ministry, Mr. Melnik, who used to make some atrocious statements as ambassador to Germany, said that the current volumes of military assistance to the Kiev regime were not enough and they needed 10 times more. According to him, the partners had to cross the artificial red lines and allocate 1% of their GDP for military shipments. The appetites of the Kiev regime are growing progressively. The NATO countries have already spent over 65 billion euro for military assistance to Ukrainian armed forces and they continue training for the Ukrainian servicemen. On the 24th of April, the coordinator for strategic communications in the National Security Council of the White House, Mr. Kirby, boasted that the United States was preparing battalions of Ukrainian soldiers outside of the country using the so-called combined maneuvers. And using these methods that they would bring together the mechanized infantry with the air defense system which would allow them to openly operate on the ground. Last week, according to Kirby, Kiev received a new weaponry for the sum of $325 million. The United Kingdom has sent thousands of ammunition pieces for the Challenger 2 tanks, including the depleted uranium weaponry and they do not consider the consequences of the use of such ammunition and they openly said that they were not responsible for the use of such ammunition and the consequences of such use meanwhile the u.s installed government in kiev declared the right to destroy everything in the breakaway republics in the eastern part of ukraine and it did so on television Zakharova also discussed this at her Thursday press conference at the Foreign Ministry. We have taken note of another extremist statement of the Council of the, the advisor of the Office of the President of Ukraine, Mr. Podolak, on the 25th of April, speaking in the Ukrainian TSN TV channel. He said that Kiev had the legal right to destroy everything located in the territory of Crimea, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson regions. End of quote. Everyone has realized that they are not just following the logic of destruction, they are following the logic of elimination, everything that goes against their nationalist logic and the nationalist ideology. This is exactly the ideology of the Kiev regime. And they have once again publicly declared that they are no longer trying to hide what we've been trying to say throughout all of these eight years. While well, we were told that it was just our imagination. It is not our imagination. They're already talking about this openly, realizing that they no longer have any opportunity to hold back. Now they're speaking about everything directly, openly. But now they're trying to find a legal pretext for that. They do not care whether they have any legal pretext or legal foundation. They will keep on destroying anyway. This is another confirmation of 
the way the Zelensky regime treats the aforementioned regions of Russia and the people living there, who they're, I mean, the Kiev regime supposedly going to liberate. Liberation, in their understanding, means destruction. The destructive rates and the elimination of the local population are the methods of the representatives of the Kiev regime, who we are accusing of neo-Nazism and their tendency to reincarnate the fascist practices of the past. These are exactly the practices that were previously used in these territories and they are openly talking about this in Kiev. Can you remember the atrocities on the occupied Soviet territories? Back then there was also an idea of a total elimination of the people living there and now Podlak is saying the same thing. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. 90.7 FM, KPFK, the only place where you will hear an eclectic mix of true diversity, equity, and inclusion. And belonging, right? With you, with us, the listeners, and the programmers are in this together. So you know that we are in our spring fund drive and we are raising money to keep our equipment up to date to help us maybe find another location and moving costs. We don't know if we're still going to be here or when or where, but we know either way that we have an operating budget. And in order for you to receive this 24-7 broadcasting from our airwaves in Southern California with the largest signal west of the Mississippi. It takes it takes money to do this. So this is why we have our KPFK membership fund drives. And we need you to go to kpfk.org and click donate or call 818-985-KPFK, 818-985-5735. And let's kickstart your involvement with KPFK with a subscription or a monthly donation, quarterly, annually. But let's give and let's keep us on the airwaves. Let's keep the momentum going. And I want to thank you guys for, you know, staying connected with us, for those of you guys who have donated with us. All right. And now, international news from non-NATO media with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. European Union military spending has reached levels not seen since the end of the Cold War, according to a new report. Raman Mazahari has more. A new report on global military spending found that the European Union's expenditures soared 13% last year to reach $345 billion. That means the bloc is the world's second largest arms purchaser, sprinting far ahead of China, but spending well less than half of the United States. European military spending has now reached its highest level since the end of the Cold War 30 years ago. The historic increase in European military spending comes despite once-in-a-generation inflation records, as their sanctions campaign against Russia keeps backfiring against the Western economy. It's quite shocking. Today in France, there has been months of social tension over our pension system and due to an alleged deficit of 15 billion euros, while the five-year spending plan for the French army calls for over 450 billion euros. France is just one component of the European equation, but it's clear only the arms industry is happy about this increase in military spending. Brussels has repeatedly ramped up the conflict in Ukraine with once-unthinkable arms deliveries. 
European arms are already all over Africa and the Middle East due to Western support for failed interventions in places like Libya, Syria, across the Sahel, and elsewhere. Europe must prioritize a diplomatic solution in Ukraine. The danger is that when there are guns on the ground, one day somebody might use them. The only way this ends is with the destruction of either Ukraine or Russia, or with people finally getting around a table and working through issues diplomatically. Last year, Finland, Qatar and Saudi Arabia recorded the biggest increases in military spending. Globally, defense expenditures increased 4% this year to a record $2.24 trillion. That only barely exceeds the $1.98 trillion budgeted this year for the United States Department of Defense. A report reveals that the European Union is exposing a massive loophole by exporting pesticides banned over their health risks to developing countries to later be used on farms supplying food giants worldwide. Rachel Marsden has the details. So according to this report, pesticides and fungicides made by European companies like Germany's Basef and Bayer and Switzerland's Syngenta are making it into developing countries like Brazil, where they're being used on basic ingredients like sugar on plantations that supply Western multinational food companies, which in turn supply the whole world with these ingredients. Brazilian agriculture ministry documents and justice ministry officials in Sao Paulo have reportedly confirmed the use of various substances banned in the EU, including insecticides and fungicides. In response, the UN Special Rapporteur on Toxics and Human Rights calls the export of these chemicals for use in developing countries a, quote, abhorrent practice. The news is all good, though, for the multinationals, with companies like Nestle having just posted absolutely stellar results for the first three months of this year. All our product groups deliver double-digit growth, a notable feature in this past four quarters in a row. Confectionery led by KitKat and Munch posted a strong growth, supported by consumer-led campaigns, innovation and engagement. Germany's BASEF and Bayer say that their products are safe, but what's considered safe in Brazil is clearly quite different from Europe's own health and environmental safety standards. Nestle is basically acknowledging that, citing its compliance in the markets where it operates. We continue to closely follow regulatory developments everywhere we operate to ensure full compliance for all our products. Nestle is not involved in campaigning against an expert ban on pesticides and active ingredients banned in the EU. But what's the point of Brussels being so uptight about food regulations when a loophole this massive exists? Out of sight, out of mind, perhaps. Hey, they can't have these big Western multinationals reduced to begging in the streets with tin cups just because the EU wants to virtue signal its concern over health and environmental safety, right? But look, the fact that some food components have to make plane trips from halfway around the world to avoid being seen getting loaded up with dodgy chemicals really achieves little of genuine virtue beyond making the EU look like they're protecting people when they're clearly just displacing the problem. The UK government has come under fire over accusations that they have abandoned UK nationals amid rising violence in Sudan. Robert Carter has the details. It's believed close to 4,000 British passport holders remain stranded in the Muslim-majority country. British Foreign Secretary James Cleverley was forced to admit that Britain's ability to help remains severely limited unless a ceasefire is reached. We will continue on our diplomatic effort to bring this conflict to a swift conclusion because until that happens we are severely limited in our ability to provide assistance to British nationals. Criticism of the UK government's handling of the crisis has risen sharply following the news of a special nighttime military operation that was conducted in order to secure the safe evacuation of British diplomats and their families on April the 23rd. However, some have even gone as far as to suggest that the treatment of the remaining stranded nationals may have been very different if their country of origin had been, say, somewhere on the European continent rather than the Muslim-majority African country. Press TV managed to speak with Ahmed Kabalo, a British Sudanese journalist with family now living in a war zone. Now there's a 72-hour ceasefire. Britain has now announced that it will be trying to evacuate those with British passports. But the announcement came too late 
And I feel like they've been shamed into this decision by their European counterparts who acted decisively and quickly and showed that Britain doesn't care about their citizens, especially if they're of the Sudanese descent. Khatoum, Bahri and Undaman, which is essentially the capitals of Sudan, have never seen violence like this. So many of these people are completely unprepared for the level of violence that they've seen. I had my cousin's house that had been shelled, um, which, which prompted him to leave. There's bullets found in the walls, through the window. All of my family, all of my family have evacuated to different parts of Sudan. Unfortunately, my dad has decided to stay put, despite our best efforts to, to convince him to leave. So every single day, you know, my mom, myself, my sister, my niece, whenever we answer the phone, we dread what the news might be. UK troops have been flown into Sudan awaiting a chance to begin evacuations. Rival military factions agreed to a 72-hour ceasefire from Monday night in the country, where at least 400 people have been killed in fighting since the 15th of April. So far, 2,000 nationals have reached out for help, but thousands more have yet to do so. The shutdown of the embassy, poor communication and regular failed ceasefire attempts are contributing towards the crisis, suggesting few lessons have been learned after a similarly scandalous exit from Afghanistan. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Richard Platkin, who serves on the board of United Neighbors for Los Angeles, provides us with his written commentary, How City Hall Should Properly Honor Earth Day. Los Angeles celebrated Earth Day on Saturday, April 22nd. At L.A. City's Hall, the holiday was barely noticed, although on April 24th, the Department of City Planning briefed the City Council's Planning and Land Use Committee, PLUM, on the update of the Hollywood Community Plan. This presentation emphasized the plan's alleged environmental benefits. Without a monitoring program, however, these benefits remain pure conjecture since the well-off tenants who can't afford the the expensive apartments that the plan promotes drive their own cars and rarely use mass transit. The updated Hollywood plan will therefore lead to further declines in transit ridership an achievement that makes the climate crisis worse. Los Angeles also desperately needs a general plan element that directly focuses on climate disruption. While former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti prepared an executive document that addressed climate change in Los Angeles, this temporary document could have become a permanent general plan climate element. Unfortunately, no city official ever called for this option. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass could nevertheless break new ground by directing the Department of City Planning to transform this abandoned climate document into a permanent general plan climate change element. In fact, the Governor's Office of Research and Planning has already prepared a climate change element template to assist this effort. If when the city prepares and adopts the environmental justice and climate change general plan elements, these documents should address and monitor three current but flawed programs. Tree planting, which is good news that Los Angeles can support in excellent urban forests. Comparable cities spend on their urban forests about three times per capita what Los Angeles spends. Since Los Angeles getting, you get what you pay for. The L.A. urban's forest is mediocre and shrinking. The One of the other three um, current but flawed programs is sidewalks, ADA curbs, buffered bike lanes. And Los Angeles has 9,000 miles of sidewalks, and most of them urgently need repairs. And the third and final is first last mile transit improvements to increase massive mass transit ridership to the point that it reduces automobile use. Every mass transit line and station should include extensive first last mile public improvements. Furthermore, any approach to increase ridership such as Kansas City's 
fare-free mass transit has ended in Los Angeles. It should be immediately reinstated and then widely publicized. Earth Day should be celebrated in Los Angeles by ramping up the city's response to the climate crisis. What Placken outlined is just the beginning and states the ball is in the court of our elected officials, both old and new, to turn short-term events into long-term climate actions. Dick Plactkin is a retired Los Angeles city planner who reports on local planning issues for City Watch LA. Here is this evening's commentary with Russell Brand on Tucker Carlson's departure and the mainstream media reliance on corporate and government interest segment, is, which is introduced by Rebel Alliance news anchor John Kennedy. Back in March, Alex Jones, who some consider the Vedic astrologer of independent pundits, predicted Tucker Carlson would be leaving Fox News. Turns out, he was correct. What does this mean for cable news? Russell Brand takes a look. Tucker Carlson has left Fox News, and I see this as a great harbinger. The beginning of the end for the mainstream. A mainstream media that's been reduced to packaging and selling your data. They do it more than even porn sites. Check those facts for yourself. A mainstream media that siphons us off into silos, turns us against one another, plays to the gallery, preaches to the converted, has got nothing original to say, and serves the government rather than the public they were set up to inform. Let's get into the story and see how the mainstream are reporting on Tucker's departure. Right now, the media landscape is significantly different than it was just two hours ago, with two of the highest profile cable hosts out of a job. Oh yeah, and Don Lemon left CNN as well. First, the news that Tucker Carlson, who was regularly drawing three million viewers a night, parted ways with Fox News. And then, just an hour later, Don Lemon tweeting he is out at CNN after 17 years with that network. It also shows that the media is obsessed with itself. It's in a sort of narcissistic spiral, reporting on its own perspectives, its own heroes and its own villains. What is the mainstream media supposed to be for? Just for a moment, remind yourself that it's actually about giving you information about important stuff, like how the government are governing, about how corporations are behaving, the information that you need to live your life efficiently and effectively so you're informed politically. It doesn't do that. You know it doesn't do that. You know that the mainstream media is owned by certain corporate interests. You know that it gets all of its revenue from like the pharmaceutical industry. You know that they're tied up with the military industrial complex and you know that they support the state with only partisan distinctions between this party or that party defining their output. They do not serve in your awakening. They do not serve your empowerment. Where Tucker Carlson goes next will inform us a great deal about our political landscape. If he joins an independent news organisation, that's going to be fascinating. It will demonstrate where the power is moving and it will show us why authoritarian, centralised systems of power are doubling down on trying to censor, control, surveil, prohibit, smear, destroy any alternative voices because they recognise that now we can all communicate instantaneously and challenge any narratives that they put forward. That's why they've become ultra-propagandist. The audience tops three million on an average night. Viewers drawn to Carlson's far-right opinions on issues from January 6th to immigration. Far-right, da-da-da. So you can see the opponents of Fox News and the detractors of Tucker use this as an opportunity to talk about the Dominion voting machines, the payouts, and Tucker Carlson being far-right. Even if you are a Democrat, even if you are a socialist, to describe Tucker Carlson as far right is the only thing that's extreme that's going on there. Carlson leaves just days after Fox Corporation settled a defamation lawsuit with Dominion Voting System for $787.5 million. Much of the reporting of Tucker Carlson's departure has centered on Fox News' recent out-of-court settlement to Dominion, which, of course, is meant to verify Biden's authenticity and legitimacy as a president, and democracy more broadly is successful and functioning. Even if it's legally proven that those Dominion voting machines are effective, democracy itself is 
obviously broken. And here's just one example of how. Looking at other out-of-court settlements. For example, the pharmaceutical industry regularly settles out-of-court for much larger sums. And the pharmaceutical industry is the biggest funder of the mainstream media through advertising and commercials. In 2009, the largest healthcare fraud settlement in history, pharmaceutical giant Pfizer, paid $2.3 billion to resolve criminal and civil allegations that the company illegally promoted uses of four of its drugs. So if you were a really ethical organization, you wouldn't go to the mat, go to bat for the pharmaceutical industry while attacking Fox News. Oh, they've paid $787 million. It's the biggest fine history. What about Pfizer's billions settled out of court? You were happy to promote their product. How often do you see on mainstream media sponsored by Pfizer? CNN Tonight. Brought to you by Pfizer. They cannot badmouth Pfizer. So them claiming to be ethical organizations is ridiculous. It's a minor difference that they are fetishizing and valorizing because they've got nothing real to offer you. They know they've got nothing real to offer you. In 2020, the pharmaceutical industry spent 4.5 billion US dollars on advertising on national TV in the United States. In 2020, TV ad spending of the pharma industry accounted for 75% of the total ad spend. Okay, so we know that CNN and MSNBC and Fox News are all in bed with the pharmaceutical industry. What's their relationship like with that other titan of US and globalist power, the military-industrial complex? Many of the retired military leaders employed by the networks as paid contributors have secondary affiliations that rarely if ever mentioned, leaving viewers in the dark about whose interests they're promoting. That's why people like Tucker Carlson because Tucker Carlson attacks the military-industrial complex. Tucker Carlson says, I was wrong to promote the Iraq war. I'm ashamed of it. He sounds like a normal guy. You might not agree with him. You might think he's racist. You might think he's the worst person in the world. Or you might love him. But what the mainstream media, what these authoritarian systems are not acknowledging is we are being stripped of humanity. We're being stripped of real discourse, real connection, real conversation. So people that seem real, they have an impact. And they're going to have an impact because they're operating in a landscape of total corruption where they're posing as pious on what basis? They take money from the military industrial complex, they take money from the pharmaceutical industry, they steal your data, they lie to you and they want you to treat them like they're kind of priests or preachers or people with some kind of moral rectitude. They have none. None of the leading networks, including CNN, Fox and MSNBC, makes a regular practice of announcing its military analysts' financial ties to the Pentagon, connections that could colour their on-air comments. MSNBC is owned by Comcast, a subsidiary of General Electric, the 14th largest defence contractor in the US. One wonders if General Electric are out in Taiwan right now, agitating for new contracts when Taiwan and China situation gets a little bit more aggressive. So how can they report honestly and openly? They have deep relationships with corporate and state interests that prevent them from reporting to you openly and honestly. And now, data capture, a significant part of the mainstream media's economic model is stealing your data, packaging it up and selling it. So how can they ever report openly on privacy? News outlets entrusted with promoting transparency and privacy are also lobbying behind closed doors against proposals to regulate the mass collection of Americans' data. The Interactive Advertising Bureau, a trade group, reported it was lobbying against a push at the Federal Trade Commission to restrict the collection and sale of personal data for the purpose of delivering advertisements. The IAB represents both data brokers and online media outlets that depend on digital advertising such as CNN, MSNBC, Fox News and dozens of other media companies. So all of them operate within one cohesive unit, capturing your data and selling it to advertisers. It's necessary for them to do that. So they can never do a story, this just in, people are bundling up your data and selling it even worse than pornography sites do. Major media corporations increasingly rely on a vast ecosystem of privacy violations even as the public relies on them to report on it. In 2020, a study found that news websites contained the most trackers globally, more than business, banking, entertainment or adult websites. They're worse than porn. While users may turn to the news to learn of ways in which corporations compromise their privacy, it is news sites where we find the greatest risk to privacy, note the report. That is a literal definition of irony. You might go to a mainstream media news website to learn about privacy, 
They'll steal your data and sell it while you're doing it. What the Tucker Carlson story points to more broadly is the decay of trust in the mainstream media. Tucker is a powerful voice because people trust him. You might not like him. You might like Don Lemon, who's also left. You might like John Stewart, who I think is amazing, who asks difficult questions of people in power. That isn't what I'm saying. You've got the right to like whoever you want to like. What we're discussing is the economic models and how these economic models have been impacted by the technology technological revolution and how it has impeded their ability to tell you the truth and how it's now impossible for the mainstream media to do anything other than advocate for the state and work for corporate interests. Next, Pedro Baez comments about the death of the white woman, Carolyn Bryan Donham, who falsely accused young black teenager Emmett Till and got him lynched. Carolyn Bryant Dunham, whose words doomed Emmett Till, has died at 88. It was her perjured testimony in the 1955 trial in her husband and his half-brother that was crucial in their acquittal in the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till. She was never implicated in Emmett's murder. In May 2004, the FBI opened an investigation to see if others were involved, and Emmett's body was later exhumed for an autopsy which had not previously been performed. In 2007, a state grand jury in Mississippi declined to indict her or anyone else. She is now dead. Had this been in some other state, like, say, Massachusetts or Nevada or even Arizona, she would have been charged with depraved indifference, but she never was. It would have been interesting to see what had happened when she was there at the pearly gates on Judgment Day. For the Rebel Alliance News and KPFK, I'm Pedro Baez. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. What it is, KPFK? I'm Angela Birdsong, and you know what time it is. Yes, time for our Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar. Tande Sizwe Shemaranga will discuss Afeni Shakur and the Tupac Shakur documentary, Dear Mama, tomorrow, Friday, April 28th, on Black Power Media YouTube at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Go to blackpowermedia.org for details about Affinity Still Teaches with Tande Seasway Shamaranga. National Lawyers Guild of Los Angeles is hosting Skid Row Homeless Citation Legal Clinics the first Wednesday of every month, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Los Angeles Community Action Network, LA CAN, 838 East 6th Street in Los Angeles. Law student and attorney volunteers are needed. For more info, go to nlgla.org. Africatown Enterprise presents the African Marketplace and Drum Circle Sundays, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Crenshaw and 43rd Place for international foods, art, clothing, live music, and more. And remember to join Miles Ahead of Cancer at Walk for Kids on Saturday, April 29th at the Pasadena Rose Bowl Stadium as the family continues to honor the legacy of their son who was diagnosed with brain cancer at the age of three. Join them. And for details, go to Miles, M-Y-L-E-S, Ahead of Cancer.org. To find food pantries near you in the USA, go to foodfinder.usa. To locate a Los Angeles Tenants Union meeting in your area, on the phone or online, visit latenantsunion.org. For mental health resources, crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to namiurbanla.org under resources. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News on KPFK 90.7 FM, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego County, and 99.5 FM Ridgecrest China Lake. KPFK is a non-commercial listener sponsored educational radio with programming for you, for me, for all of us. And remember, KPFK is your key to peacemaking, freedom, and knowledge. So you guys, go to kpfk.org. Pledge. This is, we have a few days left, a few days left for our fund drive. 
So go to kpfk.org, become a subscriber, or call us at 818-985-KPFK. And let's let's keep KPFK strong and an independent source of music, arts, news, and information. And let's get into this generational listenership and donate at kpfk.org. Okay, so thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all the Rebel Alliance news contributors. We hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. Coming up next, American Indian Airways with Larry Smith. Thanks for listening to KPFK, your listener-sponsored radio station. We're nearing the end of our April fund drive, but we will still need more support to reach our goal and cover our expenses. Please consider making a pledge to 